Welcome to The Sword and Trowel. The Sword and Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. And I am Tom Askell, and I'm here with my good friend Randy Starkey, who is new with Founders Ministries as of August of last year. Randy came on board as the Administrative Director of Founders. And Randy, welcome to The Sword and Trowel. Well, thank you, Tom. It's a pretty exciting to be here after all these years of watching the sword in the trial. Yeah, well, we're so. glad to have you here and glad to have you on this podcast today. Uh, you and your family arrived in August of 2022 in Southwest Florida, and just about a month later, we gave you a full Floridian welcome with Hurricane Ian. And uh, so you you have earned your credentials. Your your bona fides cannot be questioned. You are a Floridian now. Absolutely, yeah. That was uh, I tell everybody, like I said earlier, that uh, we we came for the hurricane so. <laughs> and stayed for the aftermath, right? Yeah, it was a great test because you know my wife afterwards saying you know she never wants to leave Florida after that. That's a pretty good. Uh, test. Yeah, that, that is. Are. And you and your family were just so great, man. You guys were all over the place, helping out, serving the community and um, administering God's grace. And it was, it, uh, it probably sped up the process by several years in terms of just getting integrated. Absolutely. After three weeks post hurricane, I felt like we knew about everybody in the church and that's a good number of people. Yeah, that's right. So. That's right. Well, before Randy and I start talking about uh, something that we think will be beneficial to pastors who've been out there serving faithfully, doing the best they can for a long time. I want to mention that the 2024 Founders Conference registration is open. There's still a discounted rate available for you to uh, sign up and come to sunny Southwest Florida in January 2024. That's January 18th through 20th. And we will have Conrad in Bayway, Phil Johnson, Travis Allen, and Joel Beakey, who will be joining me and will address the theme of remembering Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to come and participate in that if at all possible. And then also the Institute of Public Theology is going strong. We just announced our degree programs. Very excited about that. Uh, the registration is waived temporarily for those that want to seek to enroll as full-time students, you can go to instituteofpublictheology.org, get more information. But we got courses coming up next month with Tom Nettles teaching church history from the Reformation to the present, and then Jim Renahan, who will be teaching Baptist symbolics using his new book that Founders has just published, uh, which is an exposition of the 1689, the Second London Baptist Confession. There's nothing like it. I encourage you to get a copy of that. You can audit these courses. You can sign up. They will be live-streamed as well well. Uh, And then Scott Callahan, our new dean of the Institute, will be teaching Hebrew 1 starting this spring as well. So again, get more information at the website. Well, Randy, you have been a Baptist pastor for how many years? 26. 26 years. When did you know that you were, uh, that's what God was calling you to be, and, and you began to make serious preparation to enter into gospel ministry? Well, I'd say mine might be a little different than what you hear from some because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So when I came to faith as a senior in high school, um, I kind of shadowed our youth pastor at that time who was a new graduate of Mid-America. Mm-hmm. And so I started wanting to kind of like follow in his footsteps. That's kind of the way I saw it. And so I determined at that point that I was changing direction from at that point going to East Carolina University to, to pursue medicine mm-hmm. uh, to, to go into the ministry. I really didn't know what all that meant. Yeah. So um, I just, there was this desire. And, you know, where I come from, they would say, you know, one night you 
you one morning you woke up with a hungering for chicken, so that meant you were called. Yeah. But uh, that's a Southern thing, probably. Yeah. But um, but no, so I didn't know anything about what to do in in, in our area where I was in the foothills of North Carolina. You know, Fruitland Baptist uh, mm-hmm. Bible Institute, mm-hmm. now Fruitland Baptist College, was kind of the the training ground for mm-hmm. guys, and so that's where I was directed. And that's where I began, and yeah. uh, really got my footing while I was there. Okay, so from there you went to New Orleans Seminary, right? No, no. Um, I graduated there uh, with associates and then went to actually Calvary um, Bible University oh, okay. in, um, it was actually about Calvary Bible College at the time, but uh, in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, okay. So really unaffiliated with mm-hmm. anything, just I had a, a cousin who was going there and kind of wooed me out there. Mm-hmm. So that's where I got my undergrad okay. in uh, pastoral studies and youth ministry. Okay. Now you did some time in the city of New Orleans, right? Yeah. Later on, um, about midway through my uh, service as a pastor, mm-hmm. we got called to a church uh, just on the outskirts of New Orleans okay. in River Ridge. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so you have served several different churches as youth minister and primarily then most of your time as pastor. And you've been out there probably in a pretty typical setting for most Baptist pastors. We, we tend to have this view of the typical Baptist church, you know, of being something like a thousand members, multi-staff, and that's just simply not true. Uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention and beyond, the typical church is maybe 40 to 50 members or so, has one pastor, one staff, uh, elder who's leading the church, and very often that man's bivocational. And so it's not what we tend to think of, but the the normative Baptist church would be one that's not multi-staff and doesn't have a plurality of elders, at least in our current situation. And that's the situation that you've largely served in, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think it was around 2006, I had gone back to seminary and, um, I remember sitting at, it was the North Carolina State Convention, and uh, the executive director, treasurer at that time was was talking about church planting, and they were giving statistics about, you know, after, you know, I don't remember the exact statistics, but after like three years of church baptisms reduced down to this many, then after five years, this many, and then basically after 12 years, zero. And so the, the, the idea there was we need to really launch into church planting, which I'm all for. But my question that was raised at that time was, well, what about all these churches that exist? You know, Fifteen-year-old churches, yeah. Who's going to serve them? And yeah. so me and my wife really prayed about it and really felt like God was calling us into that ministry to try to to move and help establish uh, healthy churches from the long-existing, dying mm-hmm. churches. So yeah. that was the direction we went. Uh, I remember me and my wife joke about it now. We prayed uh, that God would make us his movable assets. Mm. Well, we really didn't have in mind that that would mean that we would move often. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, you know, and, and the life of a pastor is, is full of challenges, and yet it's, it's full of wonderful blessings, too. Um, John Newton has this this hymn that's not well known. It says, oh, what contradictions meet and ministers employ. It is a bitter full of sweet. It is a sorrow full of joy. Mm. And that's true. I mean, it's true. You, you have wonderful experiences, and yet you have incredible challenges. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the case for every pastor, no matter what uh, area he serves in, what denomination. But whenever you're called to serve in those situations where you don't have a lot of brothers to link arms with, it can be particularly trying. So when did you discover Founders? I mean, how did you get connected with Founders Ministries? I'm pretty sure I I got connected with Founders around 2004. I was actually the last uh, um, job that I served as a youth pastor. And Mm -hmm. In those latter years, it was interesting because, you know, I had come early in, in college to a, a, a view of the doctrines of grace. Mm-hmm. And um, 
but it took really about five, six years for my theology and practice to meet. Mm -hmm. And when it did, it really radically changed my perspective and how I was doing things. Uh, I always joke about the fact that I am the guy who produced the, the uh, generation that had the most exodus from the church. You know, Mm -hmm. I was that guy Mm -hmm. uh, doing that kind of youth ministry, but God really transformed that around 2003 and so in 2004, I don't remember exactly how, I think it was through a recommendation of a friend, I discovered Founders then. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I met you for the first time, you won't remember, but in 2006, Greens- Greensboro uh, uh, Convention. Okay, so, all right. Yeah. yeah, well, that's a long time ago. And then, um, I mean, through that time, you've accessed different um, resources that Founders has produced. Can I'm interested in just thinking about pastors who, are in the trenches that you have been in, uh, what things have you found helpful? What things would you say are commend to men like that who are out there today doing faithful work uh, day in, day out, and it's hard and it's lonely, and they're wondering, you know, man, uh, where can I get help? Well, initially, uh, really the way Founders was a service to me was uh, in really two practical ways, was really just learning and growing at that time. You know, mm-hmm. so the the commentaries that, that Curse Vaughn had that you guys mm-hmm. had published were, were something that, you know, I utilize regularly. But the one thing I always remember was u- utilizing, because I taught Sunday school in the first church I pastored as well, the adult Sunday school class, and uh, I used Tom Nettles' mm. study every week. So yeah. I would just look at what the scripture was, kind of set aside the, the quarterly and just pull up Tom's resources. So I've, I use those regularly for a long time and, and have recommended those to many people because they were very helpful for me. But then really it was just in the early days, it was more just to helping me to learn and sharpen, you know, my, my perspective of theology and, mm-hmm. and how to begin to uh, start to apply that. Yeah. And Tom Nettle's uh, Sunday school lessons are still being yes. produced every week. Uh, I get an email from him. He's faithful in this. They are stellar. Encourage you to go to founders.org and access those so that they're beneficial for your own private study. But if you're using the material that Lifeway produces, uh, Tom tracks that and provides helps for teachers and for students in that. So you, you got help with commentaries. You got help with those Sunday school lessons. And then I'm sure other books that came out maybe sure. would have served you along the way yeah, as well. I have to plug it because on top of that would be the law and the gospel. Yeah. That book was probably, that's like a yearly read for me. Yeah. It has been good. for a long time. Yeah. Ernie Reisinger's book. And yeah. uh, it's a great book. Encourage everyone to get a copy of that as well. So were you able to attend any founders conferences uh, over those years? Never was. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I, I really didn't attend a lot of conferences, so it really wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, in the churches I served, really, it wasn't you know, a, a situation that was, uh, doable. Right. Yeah. So you, they didn't, they didn't have certain conferences they sent their pastor to every year. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, and that's pretty typical. I mean, again, we, we get the impression that, oh no, you know, the typical Baptist pastor goes to these conferences, this convention does this type of thing. And that's just simply not true because most churches aren't in a position to facilitate that. Right. Which is really one of the things that it was a growing process for me because when I became a senior pastor and it was a solo pastor and, you know, the typical church of, you know, I think the largest church I pastored throughout my time was probably around 150, but most of them under a hundred. But, you know, I was kind of in locked in this world, kind of separated from the, the world at large. Mm-hmm. And so Founders was kind of my only uh, um, link to the outside world, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. to, to know what was going on in, in, in the broader scope of evangelicalism. Yeah. So, yeah. And one of the things we have been emphasizing from day one is, is trying to see 
churches become biblically renewed, you know, for the reformation of local churches. Mm -hmm. And that's because uh, we're always in need of reformation. You don't ever arrive and say, okay, we've got it. No, it's the church reformed, always reforming according to the word of God. And Founders wants to facilitate that. And where you get churches becoming increasingly healthy uh, and pastors leading those healthy churches, then that, that ability to link arms with others in the congregation, to have a multiplicity of leadership and, and um, we'll call them elders, staff, whatever you call them, but, but men who are entrusted and qualified to give leadership to the church can be a great blessing. And then connecting with other churches and other ministers as well. And we've tried to facilitate that uh, through the years in a variety of ways. Uh, most of it probably, apart from the conferences, most of it has been informal with just getting guys together and connecting guys in different locations. So w- what have you discovered as a pastor going through those times, which probably saw a lot of loneliness. And uh, when you have opposition from people in the church that don't want to see the kind of biblical health being brought to bear and, and renewal take place, uh, that can, that can be a lonely spot. Yes. So, so what do you, what do you <clears throat> counsel do you have? What encouragement do you have for men who find themselves in those lonely spots today? Well, that was, you know, so I, I would say it's kind of twofold for me is, and again, it was in a progressive learning process because at first I was kind of a, an island to myself, you know, mm-hmm. and some of that was, you know, my own immaturity in the ministry, thinking I could do it all. But, um, you know, I know in my early days, the association that I was a part of wasn't really a, a strong good. I felt like they were sucking more out of my church than they were giving. Mm-hmm. So I really wasn't connected there. So I was alone. And so I began to learn the hard way um, that you really needed to have some arms to link with beyond the walls of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a debatable thing. We always wanted our lives to be centered in the church, and it was, but I recognized that need. And so the two things that really developed from there was a stronger um, desire to to connect with uh, organizations like Founders and, and mm-hmm. enabled me to become more familiar with Founders over the years. Uh, and then, of course, to, to find uh, ways to do so in my local association. Mm-hmm. Because the way it worked in, in I could say, in the, the different churches was, you know, year one, it was a time just to get to know the people, to love on them and to earn respect or what I say, the right to speak into their lives mm-hmm. and be faithful to preach the word. And, and what I'd find after year one, I would hear often uh, people come up to me and say, man, we've just really not never grown this much, you know, hearing the word just, you know, systematically preached. And then through year two, it'd be like that. But then all of a sudden around year three, sometime in that, they would realize that what they had learned, they were going to have to do something about, mm-hmm. and the tensions began. Mm-hmm. And that's where nitpicking would start. And that's where it got really tough when there was nobody else to come alongside and mm-hmm. encourage and, and remind you that, hey, you know, just, just stick with it. Just mm-hmm. be in it for the marathon. So that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Randy, that's inevitable for any ministry, I think, that uh, where a man goes into a church that hasn't been well taught and maybe neglected a lot of things, haven't really been confronted with the truths of God's word and their implications uh, for maybe 10 years, 20 years or a generation. And that man's committed to doing exactly that. Um, when you say some things, you can say, you can preach in ways that people will say, oh man, praise God for that. Because I think most members in most Baptist churches have some affinity for the word of God, you know, and they, they, they recognize, okay, this is right. This is what God says. And we ought to believe that. And so we appreciate that. But if a, if a man's preaching is not going to go beyond just stating positively 
what things the Bible says. Two, something that is equally important, stating negatively what the Bible condemns and being discriminating in preaching. If you're not going to preach with discrimination, and by that I mean where you say, this is what's true, let's look at all the truth, and this is what's false, let's renounce what's false because we're not going to fall into that. And you hold them side by side and you say, this is true, this is false. If you don't do that, uh, you could preach a long time and not get in trouble. Right. But if you say, hey, man, let's talk about a horse. And here's the horse. You draw all the contours of the horse. You say, this is what we're supposed to be riding on. It's a horse. Everybody says, oh, amen, praise God, we love horses, we got horses. If you say, but this is a cow, and the cow's not the horse. And look at the difference between the cows and the horses. Everybody that came riding up on a cow is going to hate you because they've been thinking they're riding a horse. And now you're telling them, nope, you're riding a cow. (laughs) Yeah, and when that means, when they recognize that, hey, if we can't stay on this path, it means we're going to have to change something that we've been doing for 10, 15, 20 years. That's, you know, that's just, that's, it's hard. It is very hard, particularly in how our churches are organized, structured, and, and how we try to minister. And so, uh, man, pastoral works hard work. It's hard work. If anyone who desires the office of an overseer desires a good work, <laughs> but it is indeed work. So founders exist to try to encourage pastors like that, to try to promote healthy churches, and we have a a lot of resources. The books we publish are designed for that purpose. The conferences that we host are designed for that. The Institute of Public Theology is designed for that. Uh, One of the things that that we've become convinced of over the last several years and finally acted on it a couple of years ago is we need to provide ways for men to be trained for the world that we're in, not the world we used to be in. Mm, Yeah, And and I would say... um, from what we've learned over the last few years, you know, the world that we're headed into that we can't even begin to fathom all the particular mm. issues that might arise, uh, but we can still be prepared. And, and really I would say that on that point, founders became the most um, useful, maybe that's the right word, useful for me as a pastor, because, you know, not to knock anything. I loved my seminary training but, you know, as far as pastoral ministry, I was trained to, to counsel and to do, you know, these general things. But nobody could prepare me for what was coming mm-hmm. uh, when we hit, you know, the issues with critical race theory, when we hit, you know, COVID and all those things. And I just don't think pastors were prepared to begin yeah. to think through how do I take a biblical view and then apply it to these situations. And that's where founders really became a, a big help for me uh, because you guys were trying to, to speak you know, from a biblical platform, but then taking it and, and helping me see how I need to apply that in my context. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a huge, huge help uh, for me as a pastor and an encouragement along the way, because those were some difficult days. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And I remember, well, from the beginning, uh, we had these convictions, but we clarified them along the way. I don't know how many years ago now, maybe seven, eight, ten years ago, of uh, where are we going to focus? What are, what are going to be kind of our, our emphases going forward? And it was pastoral theology, a renewal on the pastoral ministry, pastoral theology, a renewal on confessionalism, mm-hmm. and the fact that we need to know what we believe and be willing to nail our colors to the mast on that, and then a renewal on uh, law and gospel to yes. understand what God requires and what God provides. And yes. man, I see all of those issues involved in the confusion over the last few years. Well, just speaking again from the context I served in, uh, something I would have been ignorant uh, of just not fully understanding is, is while churches often you'll hear like, oh, we need to move to a plurality of elders, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I had no real good understanding of what it meant to practically be confessional. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, recently I've, I've had a pastor friend reach out to me about, you know, wanting to move his church to a plurality of elders. And so my response to him was, hey, that's a great thing, but that's not enough. Mm-hmm. You really need to start considering what it means and what it looks like to be confessional, mm-hmm. uh, because that's going to be the foundation of which that's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and interesting enough, you know, they've, they've been studying through the 1689 uh, to, to figure out how to, to navigate that kind of transition. So, mm-hmm. so that was, that's been a helpful thing to me as well to understand. So, uh, I guess your, uh, your, uh, your focus was successful. Uh, <laughs> well, so uh, the significance of, of confessionalism. Yeah. So. And confessionalism is vitally important. That doesn't mean you have to adopt the 1689. Right. I mean, that's, I would recommend that of course, but whatever your confession is, be clear on it mm-hmm. and set it forth in a way that you're not apologizing and that people understand, and especially your leadership understands these are pre-commitments. We're not looking for truth in these areas. We think God's taught us truth. And so we're going to operate on the basis of what we believe the Bible to say about these things. And when you do that, man, it just gives clarity at the outset for a lot of issues. And yes. clarity is, uh, it's like gold in pastoral ministry. It'll save you a lot of heartache along the way, unnecessary heartache. Yeah. Amen. Okay. Amen. Well, Randy, thank you so much, uh, for joining me today on the sword and trial. Delighted to have you on board here at founders. And if folks want to find Randy, you can call the founders office. You can email. He gets most of the emails that come through or at least sees them. So, uh, reach out to him, encourage him. If you have any questions, he'll be glad to try to answer them. If founders can do anything for you, please let us know. If this episode has been useful to you, then would you send it to other people or share it in some way? Click like, subscribe to the different uh, platforms where Founders, uh, the Sword and Trial Founders Ministry podcast exists. That helps us to get this word out further. So thanks for joining us today.